Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, taking a brief break these next two weeks from our study through the Gospel of John. And as we think about Christ and his kingship, we're going to look at the eternal perspective given to us in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 15, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There was a rancher from Texas who was on the plane sitting next to a businessman And as you know, Texans have a reputation for boasting about their state. I know, I work with one of them. And this rancher wanted to impress this businessman with how big his ranch is. And so he, out of the blue, just to start a conversation, he said to him, once it took me three days just to drive my car from one end of my ranch to the other one. And the businessman shook his head and said, yeah, I had a car like that once. I feel like that Texan Texan rancher sometimes when I say out in public, Jesus is Lord. Because they just don't get it. They don't understand what I'm trying to communicate about Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. They miss the point of the implications of what that is saying. Of how high and lifted up he is. And how great and powerful his authority is. Of course, when you think of that kind of misunderstanding, your mind quickly goes to what happened on what we call Palm Sunday. The Sunday before the last week of Christ's life. As he entered into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey... And the people gathered around and laid out their robes and waved their palm branches and shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In spite of what they claimed, they really didn't get it. The vast majority of them didn't understand. Their view of Christ's kingship was so distorted, it was too earthly And it was way too small. 
And that defective view of his kingship led them to very quickly turn and cry out only a few days later for his crucifixion. I, unfortunately, though, I think it's true, often, true too often in the church that we as Christians, even though we claim it as part of our creed that Christ is king, that Christ is Lord, we don't get it nearly to what the scriptures reveal it to be. We don't understand. We live with a view of his kingship that is far too earthly and far too lowly. And that's why in this passage, in Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the church. And notice what he prayed for there in verses 18 and 19. That you and I would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he called you. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants our spiritual eyes to be opened so that we can see the immeasurable power of God towards us. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He wants us to have our eyes open so that by faith we can see the power of God that is represented by the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. He wants us to see and to live daily in the awareness that Christ is on the throne. And he's implying that to know the power of God in your life, you need to understand what it means that Christ is on the throne. There is great power available to us as we see that and claim it by faith. And on the other hand, a defective or weak or fuzzy view of the kingship of Christ will cause timidity and weakness in the church. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. And it's all about the awesome inheritance that we have in Christ. Paul desperately wants the church to understand what we possess by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he goes all the way back to eternity past before creation and points out that the work of redemption was planned by God the Father before the world was even made. And then he follows through with the the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And then he ends up in the middle of the chapter talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is the deposit which guarantees the fullness of our inheritance. And so it's all about what God has done to give us this great eternal inheritance and how we can be sure of it. But how can we be sure? How can we know that God is going to fulfill his promises? How do we know that what Christ has told us will come to pass will come to pass? And that's where Paul ends up emphasizing the resurrection and the ascension and the throne of Christ. That's how this glorious chapter ends. If you read the book of Acts, and I know that the women in their Bible study have been working their way through Acts... 
You cannot read the book of Acts without seeing that the early church had something that we miss, something that we long for. And what that was is is a sense of boldness, a strength, a confidence. The kind of boldness that turned the world upside down, in the words of the people of that day. Well, where did they get that from? Well, remember what Jesus said in the very beginning of the book of Acts. Right after his resurrection, just before he ascended to his throne, he said, you, to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel that points to Christ being resurrected and ascended and seated on the throne. And it's that confidence that enabled Peter to stand before the Jewish nation and say to them, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That took a ton of courage for Peter to stand before the Jews and say that. It gave him the boldness to stand before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over the Jews, and say to them, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And to say to them, it doesn't matter what you command of us, that if it contradicts the will of our risen, reigning Christ, we must obey God rather than men. That boldness came from seeing Christ on the throne by faith. Remember when Stephen preached the gospel boldly and he was about to come under a rain of stones that would take away his life. Remember what he saw that gave him the courage to face death boldly? He saw, he saw the heavens opened up and saw Jesus Christ standing at God's right hand. It was an awareness of the resurrection and the ascension and the session of Christ at God's right hand that enabled Paul to stand before governors like Felix and Festus and King Agrippa and eventually Caesar himself and testify to the resurrection and the reign of Christ. It enabled him to endure imprisonment and floggings and stonings and all kinds of abuse. That power... And that boldness came from seeing clearly by faith that Christ is on the throne. And if the church wants that kind of boldness, wants that kind of courage, wants that kind of confidence, then we need to have our eyes open, the eyes of our heart that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 1. We need to see Christ reigning on the throne more clearly. I've always thought that Handel's Hallelujah Chorus should, shouldn't really be associated with Christmas, although certainly it's appropriate there. It's a much better song for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. He shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah. Even better, you should all go home and program that into your alarm clock and have it wake you up every morning. It would change your life. So, according to Paul, as he seeks 
to open the eyes of God's people to the reign of Christ. First of all, he talks about the basis of that reign. By what foundation does Christ reign? Look at verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ, as the Son of God, has the power to do as he wills. But the basis of his reign is not only in his power, it's also in his work of redemption. The reason that he reigns and the reason that our inheritance in his kingdom is is secure is because God the Father raised him from the dead. He conquered death at the cross. Remember that Satan's greatest temptation to Christ, really, when he tempted Christ in the wilderness, his greatest temptation was when he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all you need to do is bow a knee to me and I will give you these kingdoms. Essentially offering to Christ a way to take his throne without having to go through the cross to endure the wrath of hell that our sins deserved in our place. If Christ only wanted to exalt himself, he could have taken another route. But the victory that he would have had by taking the throne in any other way would have been a temporary and hollow, empty victory because we would be lost. The church would be under God's wrath for eternity. The basis of Christ's reign is his victory through his death and resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read to you. These are familiar verses from Easter celebrations or funerals of believers. Listen to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Ultimately, Death cannot touch us because we are in Christ. And Christ has defeated death. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about. The greatest enemy against us is the death that we deserve because of our sins. But the cross took care of that once and for all. And because of Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension and his coronation upon the throne of God, we can rest assured that his kingdom will prevail. There is no doubt that the essential victory has been won. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, of knowing that sin and death have been defeated. There's great freedom 
and great boldness and great confidence from knowing that ultimately death has no power over us because of what Christ has done. Well, then Paul here in Ephesians 1 moves on to the extent of Christ's reign. Look at verse 21. He says that Christ's throne is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, we know that the way that Paul uses those terms, authority and power and dominion, they almost always refer to spiritual authorities. Things that we can't see, authorities that we can't see in the physical realm. Angels, demons. Christ reigns over all spiritual powers and authorities. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, beginning in verse 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Because of His resurrection and His ascension and His seat on the throne in heaven, He reigns over all spiritual authorities. There is no power in all creation that can challenge the power and authority of Christ now. Satan and every demon that serves under his authority can do nothing apart from the will of Christ without his permission. He is the Lord of all spiritual authorities. You know what that means? He's the Lord of all earthly authorities as well then. Because every earthly authority is under the control either of God's throne where Christ is seated or it's under the control and sway of the evil one. And if Christ controls the evil one and if he controls all the demons who serve the evil one, then you can rest assured that he is in control of all earthly princes and kings and prime ministers and presidents. Now, that is a worldview changer, if you believe that by faith. It'll change the way you look at everything. It'll change your political views. It'll change your views on social issues. It'll change your worldview dramatically to understand that Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of America. He's Lord of Afghanistan. He's Lord of Iran. He's Lord of China. He's Lord of every nation. He's Lord of Center County. He's Lord of State College. He's Lord of Penn State University. He's Lord of your boss, your foreman, your supervisor. He's Lord of your professor. He's Lord of your advisor. He is sovereign over every power that be. And there is incredible comfort in that, no matter what you may be going through in life right now. Now, yes, we acknowledge it's painfully obvious that none of those people in authority, I shouldn't say none, most of those people in authority, only a few of those people in authority recognize his authority over them. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. The fact that they don't recognize his authority doesn't diminish his authority in any way. 
As Paul says in Philippians 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If they don't acknowledge his sovereignty and authority today, they will acknowledge it one day. I did hear a good quote once. said, when Jesus came the first time, he stood before Pilate. But when Jesus comes again, Pilate will stand before him. And that's true. And there's comfort in that. But don't miss the fact that even as Pilate boasted about his authority over Christ just before his crucifixion, he was still, even though in rebellion and total denial of the authority of Christ, he still did the will of Christ, didn't he? It was by the will of Christ that he was crucified for our sins. And even today, there is no earthly authority who does anything that is contrary to the sovereign will of Christ the King. You know, we all have control issues. We talk about certain people in life that have control issues. But if we're really honest, we all have control issues. It's just a matter of what we do with our control issues. Some people handle their control issues by being very aggressive and assertive and trying to impose control over all their circumstances and all the people in their lives. But other people, their control issues, they express their control issues by being very passive and playing the victim to all their circumstances. But do you see how having your eyes open to the Lordship of Christ over all things, all circumstances, actually frees you from both? Control issues, either by being too assertive to try to control your circumstances or being too passive and being a victim of your circumstances. What a freedom to understand that Christ is Lord of my circumstances. He is Lord of the authorities in my life. I am not a victim, and it's not all up to me. Christ is orchestrating my life for his good purposes. That's the extent of his reign. And that leads to the last point. What's the purpose of his reign? I think in some ways this is the most important thing to get from what Paul says here. Christ reigns through his crucifixion and resurrection and victory over Satan and the kingdom of darkness. That's the basis of his reign. The extent of his reign is over all things, all authorities, all circumstances in life. But what's the purpose of his reign? And this is the one thing we can't miss. Verse 22, and he, the father, put all things under his feet and gave him his head of over, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. World events seem so chaotic. It is so hard to see that Christ is on the throne and he's in control because it, the world seems so out of control. And evil despots everywhere seem to be the ones that are really pulling the strings and the money, the people that have the money, the people that have the power, the people that have the influence. It looks like there's no control from heaven at all. But Paul says Christ is orchestrating all things. He is over all authorities and the purposes are all working together for the good, for the church that he died for. Every war, every famine, every economic collapse, every rebellion, every scandal, 
that we read about in the papers is part of his master plan. If you pick up the Center Daily Times downtown and you read it, you're going to get a view of the world that is state college centric or center county centric. How do all these things that are going on out there in the world affect those of us who live here? If you pick up a paper in Philadelphia, you're going to get a Philadelphia-centric report of the news, world events. If you go to London, you're going to get a London or Great Britain-centered perspective on world events. But if there is a newspaper in heaven, understand that if you picked it up in the morning, it would be all centered around what's happening to the church. Every world event would be related to what God is doing through his son to accomplish his purposes for the church. You see, that's what the Old Testament is like, isn't it? The Old Testament was about the Old Testament church. And all of world history, that's the beautiful thing about the history that's related to us. And most of what we know about ancient history comes from the Bible. But it's all centered around what Christ is doing for his people, the Old Testament church. Israel, it was an Israel-centered account of history. Because that's heaven's perspective. And now, since Christ has broken down that ethnic barrier and he's brought the gospel to his people in all nations, it's the church of Jesus Christ that is the center of the plan for all events in world history. Remember that when you read your paper in the morning. It's all about what Christ is doing for his church. Every nation, every king, every tyrant, every president, every prime minister is judged by how they treat the church of Jesus Christ. And so when you read about Pastor Saeed, the Iranian man who, pastor, who went to Iran and was imprisoned, and is now being beaten because of his faith and his efforts to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the most recent news accounts talked about how we couldn't get the State Department to even acknowledge it, speak up for him at all. doesn't matter, ultimately. Christ is there with him. And in the newspapers in heaven, it's not an ignored issue. It's an important issue work of the Lord that's going on there for the sake of the church in Iran. And Pastor Saeed understands that even as he is beaten for his faith, that God is using that suffering to advance the purposes of the gospel in Iran in ways that we can't observe or or even understand. There should be no fear of earthly authorities or earthly circumstances because Christ is on the throne. Paul says in verse 23 that every action King Jesus takes is motivated by his love for the church. He calls the church there his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Theologians, commentators, preachers, teachers have wrestled with what what does Paul mean when he says that the church is the fullness of Christ. In a real sense, and this is the consensus, and I think I agree with what they're saying, is what Paul is trying to say here is that, to borrow the language of a popular movie of many years ago, the church completes Christ. The church completes Christ. I want you to just dwell on that for a moment, because certainly 
You have to be very careful explaining that. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. But yet, because he loves the church, somehow the church completes him. Like a shepherd is incomplete without his sheep. Like a vine is incomplete without its branches. Like a bridegroom is incomplete without his bride. That's really the language of Scripture, isn't it? That's why Paul says when he talks about his own sufferings for the gospel, he says in Colossians chapter 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, speaking to the church, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul understood that as he suffered for the gospel, Christ suffered with him. Because we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. And so that however difficult your life is, no matter what sufferings you're going through, you abide in Christ. Christ abides in you. And as you suffer, you're filling up what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ because the plan, the work of redemption is not yet complete. He is with you and he is in control of your circumstances. And he is the bridegroom. And as a bridegroom takes his bride to himself and the two of them become one flesh, we have become one with Christ. We are in him. And so we never suffer alone. And we are never the victim of our circumstances. And because he has been raised from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, we will be raised with him and in him and we will reign with him for eternity. Does the church seem weak to you today? Does it seem divided, harassed? Do we come across in the public media, in the newspapers, do we come across like just another special interest group, another 5013C organization that's trying to get a voice out there in the marketplace? If that's the way you feel about the Church of Jesus Christ, then you need to read Ephesians 1 very carefully. And you need to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the church, that the eyes of your heart will be opened to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and reigning over all authorities, authorities in the spiritual realm, authorities on earth, Authorities in this age and authorities in the age to come. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of your circumstances. And you are the bride of Christ. He has committed himself to you. You complete him. And he will not rest until his promises are completed. I've heard that there is one form of therapy that is done for autistic kids. Some types of autistic kids you know how some autistic children are. Is they, they get so wrapped up if they're playing with toys right in front of them. That's the whole world to them. And they become unaware of the world around them. And so one of the methods of therapy, I don't know if it works or not, but is to actually take glasses, put glasses on them if they don't wear glasses, and actually cloud up or block the bottom half of the lens so that they can't look down. Sounds overly simplistic to me, but they say for some of these kids it works. 
The whole idea is that they, if you can keep them from looking down at what's immediately in front of them, teach them to keep their head up and look out and to see the bigger picture, it can help them to some degree overcome their disability. I think in many ways, we Christians need that. We talk sometimes about people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't know anybody like that. I think part of the problem is, is that we don't see clearly enough by faith what's true in heaven. And we're way too preoccupied with all these things going on right in front of our faces. We need to lift our eyes and look to the right hand of God in heaven, the one true God. And there we see by faith Jesus Christ, victor over sin, Satan, and death, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning in this age and for eternity, the age to come. Let me close by reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is Lord. Go and live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we ask you along with Paul's prayer here to open the eyes of our hearts, to show us more clearly, clear up our vision by faith, to recognize every day that Jesus is Lord, that we are not a victim of our circumstances, nor are we the Lord of our circumstances, but that we are in his hands, safe and secure, and he is working out his good purposes for his church. Thank you for making us a part of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.